Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees, plus other useful things we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. I'm Kush. I'm a competition and regulatory lawyer in the BBC legal team. In the last episode, we heard all about how you can become a solicitor. So this week, we're turning our attention to barristers. To get the facts on how you qualify as a barrister, how much it costs, and where you can get help with that, Ella and I met up with Daisy Mortimer. She's the outreach coordinator at Inner Temple. She's also really good at explaining some of the mysteries around becoming a barrister, starting off with, what is an inn of court? So the inns of court, of which I'm, I'm from the Inner Temple, which is one of them. The others are the Middle Temple, Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn. And we have existed for about 700 years. Historically, we offered food and drink and hospitality to lawyers working nearby. We were very much the pubs of court. Uh, and that's why we're called the inns still 700 years later. We, we can't shake that off. Um, but our responsibilities now are around education and training, widening access to the profession, offering scholarships to support students through the bar course. Um, and we're responsible for some of the training that you do whilst you're on the bar course, but also once you begin practising as a barrister uh, for the first three years or so, you're very involved with your inn. We run lots and lots of sessions designed to support you when you're first kind of on your feet. And we're also the organisations that have the exclusive right to call people to the bar. Another another piece of jargon there. Um, call to the bar is the graduation at the end of the bar course. And it's the ceremony, the formal ceremony, which enables you to refer to yourself as a barrister. And in order to go through that, you have to be a member of one of the four inns. Right. And the inns do still include drinking and food, though. Am I right? <laughs> well, sometimes is the answer to that question. Um, there's a bit of a, there can be a, a perception that qualifying as a barrister involves dining at your inn in, in quite a formal way. Lots of students have heard the phrase qualifying dinners or dining sessions. Um, those don't really exist anymore. It, it, historically, it was the case that in order to become a barrister, you would go and eat 12 formal dinners at your inn of court. Um, thankfully, that's not the case any longer. And those sessions are all educational. They're all about becoming the best barrister that you could possibly be. And so whilst we do still have dining opportunities, uh, those are kind of social and they're about networking rather than training for the bar. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So could you tell me a bit about how somebody could become a barrister? You know, what are the steps involved, um, you know, from perhaps going from somebody who's finished their sixth form or their A-levels? Where do they then go from there? Yeah, of course. So there is so sometimes there's a, an idea that in order to become a barrister, you have to have read law at university in the first instance. And, and that's not the case at all. Um, lots of people will have a law degree, but but also lots of people don't. Um, but in the first instance, it, the journey to the bar does begin with an undergraduate degree. It might be in law, um, but it might be in another subject. If it's in another subject, the next step is to undertake the law conversion course, uh, the graduate diploma in law or the GDL, as it's known. The GDL takes a year if you do it full time. It takes two years if you do it part time. You obviously don't need to do it if you already have your undergraduate law degree. Once you have completed either the GDL or your undergraduate law degree, the next step is the bar course. That used to be known as the BPTC, and I'm still seeing that 
um, acronym used sometimes. It's now called the vocational qualification component as of last Gosh, year. Gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. So I've, I've been saying bar course um, and that, you know, everybody knows what you're referring to if you talk about the bar course. Uh, the bar course is the formal academic part of training for the bar. Like the GDL, that takes a year if you do it full-time or two years if you do it part-time. Studying part-time uh, enables you to work alongside your studies. So that can be quite a helpful thing to do. Once you've completed the bar course, you can be called to the bar by your inn of court. So that's that formal graduation ceremony. And after that, you begin what we call pupillage. Uh, so another bit of jargon there. Pupillage is the sort of bar equivalent of a training contract in a law firm to become a solicitor. Uh, so pupillage takes place in sets of barristers' chambers. Generally, it lasts for a year. Sometimes it lasts for 18 months. Um, it is competitive to secure pupillage, just like securing a training contract is competitive. And it's the completing of pupillage that enables you to then practice as a barrister. And am I right in thinking pupillage is where you say you go and follow a barrister around and you're going into your courts and you're kind of doing that work experience and getting an idea of what they're doing? Yeah, exactly. So it lasts for a year. It's split into two periods of six months. And in the first six, you're exactly right. You shadow your pupil supervisor. So you go along with them to court, to, to whatever they might be doing. You don't take on any work of your own. In the second six, you do start taking your own work on, but you are referring to your pupil supervisor consistently throughout that period. And at the end of pupillage, Generally, what happens is that set of chambers makes a decision about whether or not you'll you'll stay with them and become a tenant, a permanent member of that set of chambers. If they decide that you won't do that, then you can absolutely go and work as a barrister elsewhere uh, rather than the set that you did your pupillage with. That's that's absolutely fine for people to do that. Um, but it's the completion of pupillage that is what enables you to practice as a barrister. How are people affording that? Is there help out there to be able to get access to the funding? You know, not everybody's in that position to be able to do it themselves. You know, what's offered? Yeah, of course. So you're, you're absolutely right that studying for the bar can be really costly. Um, I mentioned that it takes a, a year to do the bar course full time. It takes two years if you do it part time. There are nine institutions that offer the bar course and the cost varies enormously. I think the least expensive is about £12,000. The most expensive is about £19,000. And one of the most important things that we at the Inns of Court do is offer scholarships to help mitigate for that cost. Um, so all of the Inns have scholarships available. And so do the bar course providers themselves as well. And it's not a case of you can only have one or the other. If you get a scholarship from one of the inns of court, you could absolutely also receive a bursary or scholarship from whichever institution you're going to study the bar course at. So there is uh, funding and, and support out there, definitely. It's, it's just a case of kind of knowing when you need to get your application in by and, and knowing that it's out there for you. Can they cover the GDL as well as the bar course? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So we are in a Temple run a guaranteed funding scheme whereby if we give somebody a scholarship for the GDL, we guarantee to offer them at least the same amount for the bar course as well. Um, they do also have the opportunity to re-interview and, and get a higher award for the bar course and they can do that without jeopardising the guaranteed uh, minimum level of funding which they've got for their GDL. And Ellen and I were talking about this earlier, we'd heard of mini pupillages, but what exactly are they? How do you get one? Sure, so mini pupillage, again, we have that jargon in the profession 
session. Uh, a mini pupillage is the formal name for work experience that takes place in barristers' chambers. Uh, now, a, a mini pupillage can last anywhere from a day to two weeks. It, it depends on the set of chambers. You go into the set and you shadow uh, barristers. So you might get to go to court with them. You might sit in on client conferences with them. You get a real insight into what life as a barrister tends to look like. Um, there's a very helpful website called chambersstudent.co.uk. Um, and on that website, there's a mini pupillage hub, which lists all of the sets of chambers and when they have uh, those little work experience opportunities coming up. And fast forward, sort of once you've done your pupillage and a pupillage, and you sort of qualify your call to the bar. How much does that cost? How does that work? So the good thing about pupillage itself is that it is paid. Uh, historically, that wasn't the case. But but thankfully now, pupillage is a paid position. Now, the amount that you earn um, varies enormously depending on the set of chambers and depending on the practice area as well. I think the minimum pupillage award for a year is about £16,000. The highest pupillage award that I know of is from a commercial set of chambers and it's £70,000. So that's, you know, it varies enormously. And as you would anticipate, the uh, pupillages that are available at, at that much higher end are the more competitive to secure, obviously. But it, it does mean that pupillage is, is no longer unfunded, which which is obviously all, all to the good and, and as it should be because you are working. Once you've completed pupillage, then you are a self-employed individual um, it's about 80% of the barrister profession that work in that capacity. So they're self-employed, but they work from within a set of chambers. That means that 20% of the profession are employed barristers. So they're working for organisations like the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, they might be working for the government legal service. They might work for uh, law firms, which historically have employed solicitors in the majority and now start to employ barristers as well. And some financial services firms do that as well. So there is scope uh, to be employed rather than being self-employed and, and being a barrister in that capacity. Um, the majority of the profession is self-employed. And so whilst there is a great deal of flexibility with self-employment, it also means that what you earn is dependent on the amount of work that you do. And so it can vary enormously. And you don't have things like a kind of regular paycheck, a regular salary, because it depends on the cases that you're doing and and, and also, unfortunately, on how long it takes for your clients to pay you as well. Yeah, it sounds like the perils of being self-employed, of kind of running your own business almost, um, yeah. being a barrister. Yeah, absolutely. But there is lots of support available, not just from the inn, but from your set of chambers as well. So chambers employ clerks who are there to help you manage your practice. So you're not doing any of that in isolation or, or by yourself. And what is a clerk? What do they do? Sure. So clerks are really the, they are the people who are responsible for the smooth running of sets of chambers. So they're employed by the barristers uh, who, who make up a set of chambers and they're responsible for bringing in work from clients, from solicitors making sure that work is being allocated, cases are being allocated in a fair way to barristers, so making sure that you have enough cases, and also responsible for invoicing as well and making sure that you're getting paid for the work that you've done. They're there to help you as a self-employed barrister manage your practice. So they do a really important job by the sounds of it. Really important, yeah, absolutely. And, and the relationship between barristers and clerks is, is absolutely crucial. 
So, Daisy, tell us a little bit about wigs and gowns. Do you have one? Uh, no, I don't have a wig or a gown. I'm, I'm not a, a barrister and I don't have a wig or a gown. What I do have is a, a sort of supply of them, which we use uh, at events for students when we're doing kind of mock trials, for example, or advocacy exercises. So I've got quite a lot of wigs and gowns that are that are lying around, but, but they're not mine, no. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> but do barristers have to buy their own wigs and gowns uh, how, how does that work or do they pick them up from the closet yeah no they they purchase their wigs and gowns um generally just in advance of being called to the bar and it might be the case that you use some of the money that you've got from your scholarship uh to put towards the purchasing of your wig and your gown um it's sort of the uniform of the profession but i think it's it's probably quite helpful just to note that not all barristers wear wigs and gowns and it depends on the area of law that you're practicing um, and it depends on what court you're going to as well. So in the family courts, for example, they don't tend to wear wigs or gowns. Um, in the criminal court, they do wear them. And it's one of the things that marks someone out when they're attending court as, as being a barrister. It's obviously very identifiable. And are they expensive to buy, do you know? Yeah, they can be. Um, there are some new initiatives happening at the moment that are helping to kind of mitigate for the cost of them. Um, I've seen on social media recently something really interesting, which is the first ever vegan uh, barristers wig so traditionally historically it is amazing yeah they um they're made of horse hair um and so it is a, a really kind of interesting and innovative um idea that actually they could be vegan and, and they're made of hemp in that instance and so that's something really exciting that's happening um i don't know what the cost of those specifically is likely to be um but by the time students now uh, uh, sort of looking at buying them, then probably those will be available, which is which is really exciting. How exactly do you choose an inn? When I was looking into inns, I actually saw that one of them, Lincoln Inn, was uh, the place where they actually filmed Downton Abbey, which yes. I didn't know about. Yeah, no, that is um, that that comes up quite a lot. That question: How do I choose which inn to join? And you can only be a member of one of the four inns of court. And I think it's also important to emphasise that the inns are not in competition with one another. Um, we have existed for the same amount of time and we serve the same purpose. Um, and I think a good a good way of demonstrating that we're not competitive is that when you join one of the inns of court, you get access to all four in libraries, um, which is a nice way of demonstrating that when you join one in, you're not kind of cutting yourself off from opportunities at the other inns of court. But you do need to make that joining decision, which inn of court am I going to become a member of? For some people, they'll think about things like scholarships and what does the scholarship process look like? Uh, we at Inner Temple and at Middle Temple interview everybody who applies to us for a scholarship. So that's one thing that people might be kind of bearing in mind when it comes to making that decision. Like you said, what do the inns look like and, and has any exciting filming uh, taken place there? That's definitely something that people think about. Um, some of the Da Vinci Code was filmed at Inner Temple. Oh, really? Yeah. Gosh. Is there any uh, secret tunnels or, you know, like really old rooms that we're allowed to look in? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know if I should say or not, but in um, my uh, department is on Two Kings Bench Walk and it's a Christopher Wren building, which is really exciting and really beautiful and, and historic. Um, but it is also definitely haunted and there are some really peculiar little kind of stairs to nowhere, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I think we'll have to do a whole different session on that. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, ghost tours. 
And this sort of shows there's a lot of um, misconceptions and, and mystique around Big Barrister, I think, because there's so many terms of art and, and words like Inns and Clarks and, and things that, that aren't, you know, people don't do in day-to-day life. And one of the perceptions I always had was that, that being a barrister was a bit like an extension of, a, of an Oxford or Oxbridge College. Um, and I wondered what perceptions people still have and what kind of misconceptions do, um, do you hear from students and, and what kind of common myths do you like to debunk? You're so right that there is so much jargon when you come into the profession, you know, these phrases like pupillage that don't really mean anything outside of the profession. Um, and, and if you're somebody who doesn't have a legal background, then it, it can be absolutely baffling. Um, and so that's one of the kind of core responsibilities of the role of my team at the inn is to make all of that clear, but also, like you said, to debunk some of the myths um, that people believe in when they're thinking about being a barrister. So the idea that in order to be a barrister, you need to have been privately educated. L- lots of people believe that to be the case, and it's absolutely not true at all. Similarly, the idea that you need to have been to Oxford or Cambridge Again, that's not not true at all. And also the idea that you need a law degree, that comes up quite a lot. And and when we say to students, actually, statistically, in the last couple of years, there has been, a, a, I mean, it's really slight, it, it's one percentage point. Um, but the people who have secured pupillage, who are members of Inner Temple in the last couple of years, 51% of them have had a non-law degree in the first instance. And then they have done the law conversion course and then the bar course, and they've secured pupillage, having, you know, a degree in the first instance in something completely unrelated to the law. Um, so that's something that comes up quite often that students don't don't know and aren't being told that you don't need to study law to become a barrister. Um, I think other, other misconceptions that we come up against is that you're more likely to be successful at the bar if you're a man. That That is a pernicious myth. And at the senior end of the profession, you know, kind of thinking about people who become QCs, which stands for Queen's Council, and then thinking about judges as well. It is predominantly male at the moment. Um, but the inns and other organisations in the profession, like the Bar Council, for example, are working really hard on things like retention of women barristers so that it, it's not just about getting women into the profession, but also making sure that once they're there, they stay and they progress and they do take silk and they do become judges. So at the moment, those statistics don't look don't look very positive, but they are changing for the better. And we anticipate that in the coming years, we do see an increase in the number of women who are on the bench and the number of women who are taking silk, which is the the sort of colloquial phrase for um, becoming a QC. And the same for people of colour as well, where historically there has been underrepresentation. Yeah, the perception I've always had of barristers is they work really long hours. Now, is that is that true? Yeah, that is that is true. Um, I mean, I think realistically, you know, with 80% of them being self-employed, there is definitely quite a lot of flexibility. And it might be the case that you say, actually, I never want to work on Fridays. And so I just have to um, make sure that that I'm in a position to say no to cases, um, if that's what I want to do. But realistically, most barristers do work really long hours. And I'm not talking, you know, kind of nine to five, Monday to Friday. There are lots of barristers who work over the weekends, who work late, really late into the evening, into the early hours of the morning. Um, I think that it's probably right to think of being a barrister as a vocation and a lifestyle rather than just a kind of career choice. Um, that, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that unites barristers is that they're all really, really hardworking. 
So in terms of applications, what is your advice? Um, you know, when people go in for an interview, what, what would you suggest to them? What are your three top tips? Sure. So three top tips uh, for scholarship interviews. My number one tip is, I think it might sound a little bit basic, but I really can't overstate how important it is to be enthusiastic. So we're interviewing, you know, 400 people with the, the, the money is there, it's up for grabs and we want to give it away. Uh, and we want to give it to the people who convince us that they are extremely motivated towards the profession. So tell us what you're doing that demonstrates that motivation. Um, I mean, if you're, undertaking mini pupillages, that's fantastic. But what are you doing that's a bit more creative that demonstrates a bit of proactivity and ingenuity when it comes to securing uh, relevant experience? Are you visiting your local court, for example? Are you watching the live stream of cases from the Supreme Court, which is open to anyone? There's, there's nothing to stop anybody from doing that kind of thing. And just really creating the impression that you are absolutely committed to a career as a barrister. That's my, my number one tip is convincing us that, um, that you can't see yourself doing anything else and, and that you're suited to a, a career at the bar, but also that you are absolutely committed to it. That's what we would like to see. Um, another top tip I would say is that in that interview, you'll be asked questions about what you've written on your application form. So just something really practical that you can do is download a copy of your application form and read it back through. You'll have sent that form off in November and your interview won't be taking place until March. So make sure you've read it through before the interview. Make sure that anything you've written down is really familiar to you. Make sure it's kind of at the top of your mind so that when that interviewing panel asks you, um, about a particular experience that you've noted down, make sure it's, you know, really fresh in your memory and, and that you can talk about it, um, in a really compelling and engaging way. And that's my final tip is that we are looking for advocacy potential in those interviews. So thinking about how you talk in a way that is compelling and is engaging. And it might be absolutely not at all related to the bar. You might be asked a question about a hobby or an interest that you have. Um, and in the nicest possible way, the people interviewing you aren't really asking you about your your tennis playing or your cake decorating or whatever your hobby happens to be. They are giving you an opportunity for you to, to advocate for something that you've said that you care about. So practicing those skills is a really great thing to do. Um, I mean, lots of people will do things like debating when they're at university. That's a good way to practice advocacy skills. But so are things like um, drama. That is a really effective way to develop your advocacy skills. Anything where you're doing kind of public speaking, um, if you're at university, then running for a position on a committee of a society, that would be a, a sensible thing to do. Anything where you're putting yourself in a position where you're doing that kind of public performance will help you to develop your advocacy skills. And that's my my final tip is to um, make sure you're, you're speaking in a way that's compelling and engaging. Yeah. I just wanted to ask, on these scholarships and financial support, when you are um, applying for those, at what stage are you applying for those? Is that when you are looking to get into an inn or is that when you are already in the inn? You know, at what point does that come? Sure. So you need to apply for a scholarship usually in the year before you plan on starting the bar course. The scholarship application deadline is always the first Friday in November, the year before your bar course begins. So 
if you are a final year undergraduate student and you're thinking you're going to go straight to the bar course and you're not going to take any time out or, or do a master's degree or anything like that, that's the point at which you're applying for your scholarship. So if you were to be starting your bar course in September 2022, then it's November 2021 that will be the deadline for you to apply to an inn of court for a scholarship. That makes sense. Um, it, it feels like you have to go through uh, a lot of hoops if you don't have the money, though. Is there a risk of other people like slipping through the net? Do you have to be exceptional to get a scholarship or a bursary? So I think um, in the first instance, it might be helpful to give uh, a kind of ratio of uh, applicants to successful applicants. At Inner Temple, we tend to receive around 400 applications for a bar course scholarship in any given year. And we tend to expect to make around 100 awards in each year. So about one in four are your odds of securing a scholarship from us for the bar course. Now, the getting of the scholarship is based on merit. It's based on your application form and how you perform in your interview. But the amount that is awarded to you is means tested. So those phrases merit based and means tested, they get thrown around quite a lot. And it's really important to be clear about the difference between the two. So the amount that you get is based on your financial circumstances and how much support you're getting from elsewhere. But the getting of the scholarship is based on your interview performance. And that's what that's what that difference looks like. Um, the inns are not the only source of funding. So there are opportunities to get funding from your provider as well. And it's definitely worth looking into, into both if you can. So, so Daisy, we've had a lot of information about how to be a barrister and how to access all the scholarships and how to apply, what it all means. But what is the one thing you would want someone listening to this to take away? I think the one thing that I would want someone listening to this to take away and understand about the profession is that it is open to everyone. Um, so it doesn't matter what background you come from. If you have the capability and the determination of becoming a barrister, then there is space for you. What I would really want people listening to this to go away feeling is confident and motivated and that any kind of sort of preconceptions that they have about becoming a barrister have been dispelled and that there's an understanding that where you come from doesn't matter and that there's not a mould that you need to fit into because the profession wants people who are capable and determined. And if that's you, then that's all you need. So that was Daisy Mortimer. Outreach Coordinator at the Inner Temple. What did you think, Bridget? I thought one of the greatest lines that stuck out for me from the conversation was Daisy's expression that aspiring barristers should think about that career as a vocation and as a lifestyle choice rather than just a career, which makes sense when you think in the context of the time and the resources involved in joining the bar and also the incredible kind of commitment to the law and the specialisation that, that barristers undergo. So for me, that was really interesting and something I think would be useful for young lawyers to think about. Yeah, it's a really good bit of advice, isn't it? Particularly for applications as well, if you're applying and interviewing, if people can demonstrate the fact that they understand what the career of a barrister is and how it is a vocation rather than a career. Yeah, I think it was also really inspiring and promising to hear Daisy talk about the importance of attracting and retaining women, particularly at the top of the bar. I think that's really encouraging and hopefully something that we can see more of because, you know, one of the obviously one of the themes of our podcast is inclusion and 
you need to see as a young as a young lawyer you need to see people like you in the profession to feel encouraged to put your hand up and encouraged to kind of apply and step forward so I think that was really really promising as well. Yeah I think that applies equally for people of colour as well and women of colour um, as well and seeing people like you that get to the top makes you think that I can do it and there is you know there is a way for me to to get there. So as Daisy explained and as Ella and I learnt there are four inns of court Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Lincoln's Inn and Gray's Inn and they all have websites with information about becoming a barrister and what they offer to their members. We've posted links in our show notes, so do check them out. And keep listening. In an upcoming episode, we speak to Carly Green, who did her pupillage, not in Chambers, but with the Crown Prosecution Service in Leeds. And our next episode, I'm chatting with the Planning and Environment Barrister, Hashi Mohammed, who will tell us all about what it takes to make it as a barrister. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, Acast, and everywhere you find good podcasts. Make sure to like, review and subscribe so you don't miss out on our new episodes. You can also find us on Instagram. Just search Not All Lawyers Pod and use the hashtag Not All Lawyers. Please do get in touch. We'd love to hear your questions. This has been Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees from the BBC Legal Team.